everybody, just a note, this episode contains adult themes and language. So I'm, I'm trying to find a way to not talk about Joe Rogan. And I'm annoyed that I feel like I have to. Because I, I feel like if I don't, people will wonder why I didn't. Because I also have a Spotify own podcast and, you know, I'm black, which makes me contractually obligated to respond and react whenever white people act dumb. At least it feels that way. And maybe that's all in my head. I mean, it's, it's possible that I'm, that I'm overthinking and overprocessing and over unpacking a thing that no one gives a shit about anymore. Considering that I'm, well, me, that would be on brand. Overthinking is my emotional support animal. I take it with me on planes and I apologize when it barks at flight attendants. But then I, I also feel annoyed with myself that I feel annoyed. Like, shouldn't I want to address Spotify's $200 million white man? Should, shouldn't I be nipping at the motherfucking bud to roast this nigga who believed he was allowed to say nigger repeatedly with no consequence? Shouldn't I be mad that he was right? Like, I mean, there was no real public consequence for him other than having to apologize. Shouldn't I care more that we're on the same platform? Why am I not as bothered by this, by him, by them, as I feel like I should be? So this is Stuck with Damon Young, the show where we treat hypocrisy like Oprah passing out cars. And you're a hypocrite. And you're a hypocrite. And you're a hypocrite. And you're a hypocrite. And you get two hypocrites. And today we, we talk about the tension between our, our ideal political selves, you know, when our politics and, and actions are perfectly aligned and our actual selves, when our politics can be conditional as fuck. So I, I wanted to talk to actual friends of mine here because I, I'm curious how they handle that tension with their politics. One of them, Jamila Lemieux. Is, is a critic and an author and was my editor when I worked at Ebony Magazine years ago. Jamila, how hypocritical are you? I think I'm a lot less hypocritical than other people, and that's not necessarily a virtue. I am consistent to a fault hmm. in a lot of ways. And so I think it, there would be some room for hypocrisy uh in a few regards if i weren't so in my own head about like one living up to my personal politics the, the bad side of hypocrisy is like talking a good game politically but then like that's not how you really treat you know say you talk a lot of stuff about social justice but you actually have bigoted ideas mm -hmm. or you know you talk a lot mm -hmm. of black power stuff but you treat the actual you know your fellow brothers and sisters poorly right like that's bad hypocrisy. I think the the form of hypocrisy that's kind of celebrated or expected is, you know, amongst us parents, right? Like that we tell our children to behave a certain way or think a certain way and when we act otherwise. And so I I think I'm a little bit more comfortable like owning that I'm kind of raggedy. <laughs> And so, you know, like, I don't like homework either. I also think rules suck, you know, like, let's, uh -huh. we can have a real dialogue about these things. So instead of kind of like pretending at some of the rules and, and regulations of, you know, grown up 
life that I should be pretending it for my child. I just refuse to. So I think that kind of protects me from some hypocrisy. But I think for the most part, I kind of walk it how I talk it. I'm not perfect. Mm. I try not to pretend to be less flawed than I am. I think the two things, the two things that test you the most in terms of your personal politics and how sincere or how much integrity to actually have is when you're a parent and also when you're in a relationship. And with parenting, you know, I have, I have a son and a daughter. My son is two. My daughter's five. And my son, like, falls down. My politics are telling me that, you know what, little boys, it's fine if you cry. It's good. Get that out. Don't hold that in. You need to emote. You need to not be one of these grown-ass men who's afraid to express emotion. And But my initial instinctual gut reaction was man up. <laughs> Mm. Okay, I didn't say that. Yeah, I didn't. I, of course, I wouldn't say it, but I thought it's like, all right, come on, man, you're fine. And that's kind of generally my my whole steez through life is you're fine. Don't make a big deal out of things. You're all right. But I know that if my daughter was two mm. and she had fallen that same way, I would have. I w- that wouldn't have been my reaction on paper and. Out loud, yeah, my politics are a certain way, but I still have all this stuff inside of me. Well, it's part of the the process of growing up, right? You know, it's just the things that you haven't, we haven't fully unlearned yet. You know, I think we all have those moments where, you know, you, you may be very intentional about, you know, how you're engaging gender with your children, that you're equitable, right? And yet there's still these moments where you have this very kind of you know, gendered reaction, right? Um, or this reaction that's colored by his gender in that moment. I think what matters is that what you said as opposed to what you thought, you know? Like, I think there's a lot of inappropriate thoughts that go into parenting. I have definitely looked at my beautiful, sweet, you know, I'm obsessed with my daughter. I think, you you, you know, anyone who has casually engaged with me online can take a hint at that. Like, I just really, Naima is the, the sun and moon in my house. And there are times I look at her like, shuts. You know, like, like I, the, there are times where the word mommy, you know, like, cause sometimes like if she just said like, Hey, can I do this? Or can I do that? I'd be like, cool. But it, when it starts with mommy, mommy, and I've heard this 500 times, right. And like in a day and I'm losing it and I'm just like, shut the fuck up, leave me alone. You know, and here's a, a better example. I think this morning alignment, what you're talking about, like that kind of unlearning, you know, that we're trying to do. Like I didn't get many spankings growing up. I had occasional spankings. Mm-hmm. It was not much physical pain. It didn't terrorize me. It also didn't fix it. You know, it didn't fix the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, It, it might've gave my mom a moment of gratification. My dad was like, you need to whoop her ass, but he was six three and agreed that like, you know, he shouldn't be spanking me. So if mm-hmm. anyone could, my mother would. And my mom didn't want to do it. So I didn't really get spanked too much. And like, I feel that same way about my daughter. So even with everything that I've read and come to know about why it makes no sense to hit your children, why it's bad for them and it's bad for you and it's bad for the world, there's still moments where I look at her like, I smack the shit out of you, you know? Like, and I don't say it to her, but it's still in me, you know? And so like in that moment, maybe I feel like a hypocrite, but you have to forgive yourself for that. You know, it's just, it's the goal is as long as you win the fight in your head. I wanted to shift focus a bit um, and just ask if you've ever if you've ever found yourself drawn towards a thing or a person. <laughs> all right. That that your personal politics abhorred. Uh, 
anthropology, the store probably is up there for me. <laughs> okay. How so? <laughs> Well, one, they had, they actually did have like a specific, I mean, I haven't done too much shopping in there since then, but um, they had a race issue specifically and everything about it is just kind of like, you know, it, it's the excavation of art and, you know, style mm. from other people. And so, yeah, I didn't think I would ever be into that store and I kind of did, uh, became a little anthro girl for a moment. Oh, but you know what, Damon? I date cishet men. So that's number one, <laughs> two, three, four, and five. That's it. Like, that is a violation of my personal politics <laughs> on, like, a regular basis. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Just loving men, period, I will say. The amount of time I have to spend, like, hand-holding and trying to baby size and break things down there might be a little hypocrisy there because i would quickly tell somebody on the internet i don't need to you know i shouldn't have to teach you a class to just make a statement mm -hmm. but in my real life um it has become and, and like men who are close to me you know like so they're close to me and they've been around for a long time either because they're family or because they're great guys you know and, I, and mm -hmm. the ones that are my family are great guys too but you know like that this is not like you can't just easily curate a feminist circle of men where you never have to have complicated conversations about gender. Um, it, it, it's difficult. I'd say I know more feminist men. I have more feminist homeboys than the average one. Like I'm privileged to have a, a, a crew of guys that I can talk to about certain stuff and really not have to explain shit. Like they mm -hmm. might have a like, hmm, I didn't think about it that way moment, but it's never me being like, yo, you don't get it, you know, but I do a lot of yo, you don't get it. Um, in my romantic life and with some of my closest friends and it is exhausting and i know other feminist women who have opted out of that sort of labor and so sometimes i do wonder like is this some sort of you know like betrayal or am i you know playing myself by by doing this but i also feel like this is part of what comes of of having these attitudes like my goal is not to just keep them in a little box that you know, the people that are woke enough or cool enough can, or, or I should say woke enough or empathetic enough can access, but that, you know, the men that we know and love around us can also come to embrace and understand these attitudes and, you know, hopefully we'll all be better for it. So I wanted to ask you also, and that, that's the perfect segue, because um, one of the producers was talking, you know, we were doing pre-production stuff about a vetting process that she has sometimes for for men that she's interested in dating or she'll just throw a couple topics out there. It's like, you know, how do you feel about Bill Cosby? Yep. <laughs> or how do you feel about Dwayne Wade's daughter? Mm -hmm. So do you have any sort of, I don't know, like questionnaire? <laughs> I don't, I, I will say like, those are very good examples of, you know, um, questions. I, I have used the Cosby one. And that's mm -hmm. a very good way of finding out. Or Kelly is too. Um, but I will say that like, with rare exceptions, usually the guys will let something slip out. I think I just smell it on them. There's certain word like female. The word females is often such a hint. And I know mm. it's so loaded and it's like we've had so many conversations. There's so many people, not just men, but people. They're like, I don't understand why this is such a big thing. But like it, I will say that like it stands, it holds up. You know, like guys that use that language tend to, you know, the way they would speak of women in my experience, you know, I get some places it's just straight up colloquial and this is what everybody says and everybody says it. But like mm -hmm. there are other times where it's like when you're the guy who's saying females and other people are saying, you know, women or girls or ladies, 
there's oftentimes a reason for that. Yeah, you're right. Most of the times, I say 95%, 90% of the time, when someone uses that all the time, instead of just saying women or yeah. girls or, or whatever, then it's like, yeah, you, you're, you just don't want to say bitch. And you know, it's, yeah. you know, it's not socially acceptable to say that. So yeah. you're just using female, but you're using it the same way you would if you were to say the B word. Do you think that there will ever be a point when you're, you know, you, you spoke about, you know, you have these personal politics and you make some concessions sometimes, you know, whether it's, you know, with anthro anthropology or, you know, sometimes when you're dating someone or whatever, do you ever see that there might be a point where there are just no concessions made whatsoever? Like, is that even like an aspiration? Unfortunately, it's not because we live in a capitalist society and like, you know, I'm not going to pretend to be fully uh, indoctrinated into or, you know, uh, clear on having embraced like a better system of doing things. Um, but what I do know is that capitalism stokes this unhealthy sense of competition in us um, mm -hmm. as human beings, you know, amongst women. Um, it, it informs how we date. It, you know, is it's it. it robs us of our ability to be empathetic and human in so many ways. And, you know, I don't agree with it, but I also know that as a person who, you know, would like to lead a, a as comfortable a life as a black woman can access in this country, right? Like, or, you know, that, that I want to have certain nice things that I'm going to have to participate in this system, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and so I, I, don't think it's fair that some people have a lot and some people have none. And while I am invested in, you know, sharing what I have and giving things away, and I do look forward to being wealthy one day so that I might redistribute that wealth. I'm not wealthy now. Um, I still want to have a lot of things, you know, and I realize like that is to me, I think a, a violation of my own values that is more in alignment with the values that I'm surrounded by. Um, so it, and then also like, I don't see myself living in a world in which, you know, ever the structures around me have pivoted in terms of uh, how they engage race and gender and class to the point where I can wholeheartedly co-sign the majority of them, mm -hmm. such as like the United States government. Right. But I'm still going to be participating in these things. So, you know, I, I think that being black and a woman is an inherently contradictory experience and is white supremacist patriarchy, you know? And so I, I think until we have a different world, people who feel as I do are, are going to always have to make some negotiations to survive and feel good in that world. Yeah. The, the capitalism thing is where I am, where I have like the most, I guess just inherent contradictions and it's in it and it's funny because like as 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 toxic as I know capitalism is you know and I realize that there are these things that I've learned and there are these things that I've been socialized to want that are inside of me that I that I want to like extract or whatever there's a part of me that actually is like you know what I don't want to extract this like I know it's fucked yeah. up and it's like I don't <laughs> I don't want to re start redistributing everything once I finally get money for the first time. <laughs> I want to I do some shit <laughs> that I that I have never been able to do, you yeah. know. And so that that is definitely like a I guess a tension 
um, that, that I think about a lot. Um, and I think about it even in regards to my kids and my family. It's like, yeah, I, I want the people that I love and care for to be good. And that is my number one priority. And with the way the structures are now, that means to, you know, make as much or do as much as possible. And I'm trying to reconcile that with the idea that, you know what, even though that is like the short term benefit, it's still contributing to this larger system that is toxic and that my kids are going to be involved in, too. It's definitely a struggle. And like I'll say, you know, I haven't hit where I wanted to hit yet but I've also done better than my parents have you know mm-hmm. and like and done, done better than a lot of people I feel the kind of survivor's guilt that comes of that um, everything we own like our jewelry and um, our our shoes and our you know I'm just looking around clothes whatever like all this stuff has these arbitrary values that were assigned to to it by people, right? All this stuff is made up. And so I look at things that way and it, on one hand, I feel like, who am I not to have them? Because this is all ridiculous. You know, this is all crap and you can't take it with you when you're here. And I I just want to enjoy the abundance of the world insofar as I have access to it. But I also deeply resent that like everyone should have access to these things, you know? So Mm -hmm. I, I, I do believe that that will limit the ability to which I will prioritize just like just money period I want to try and reduce the amount of power and it's impossible but like as far as I can limit the amount of power um that capitalism has over my decision making and how I value myself I think that's the biggest thing that like if nothing else never will I should I let money and, and not having enough of it or not, you know, being able to do a particular thing or or whatever it is, be the reason that I look at myself as being, you know, flawed or insufficient or great, right? Like the, just because I've made money, like, and if I, you know, if, if I get a big check, it's not like this isn't the, what makes me good. This isn't what validates my talent. I think the perfect synopsis to what you just said is Gucci bags for everyone. That, that that would be that that's the optimal goal. Everyone gets a Gucci bag. Or a Telfar bag. I want everyone to have a Telfar bag. Welcome back to Suck My Dick, You Punk Bitch, the show where we put the hate in debate. He puts the proud and proud boy and the z- and neo-Nazi. Please welcome Paul Gump to the Suck My Dick, You Punk Bitch stage. Good to be here. Let's go, Brandon. And he has six PhDs from seven uncredited universities and eight kids, so you know he puts the hoe in hotep. Please welcome King God Johnson. It's Dr. King God Johnson. Doctor. (laughs) Okay, so Dr. King God Johnson, you recently tweeted that white people are snow roaches. Where does that belief come from? Wow, I just got to say real quick that that was reverse racism, which is actually worse 
than racism because it's racism, but in reverse. So I, I, I don't even do Twitter anymore because cause tweet sounds like skeet and skeet is white. The snow roaches came from my podcast. You have a podcast too. Yeah, yeah. I, I recorded from my mama's basement. It's called These Females is Crazy. And it ain't about my mama. It's about these females who expect niggas like me to have shit like jobs and lotion and beds in their apartments to date them. Well, my mother's basement podcast is called Sally. It's about this chick named Sally who dumped me in sixth grade and also mask mandates. These, oh, wow, these, these mandates are ridiculous. I mean, how, how dumb they think we gotta be. Cobad and conspiracy even start with the same two letters. They think we ain't gonna see the C-O-N behind the M-A-S-K? Yeah, right. And we're supposed to trust these scientists just because they went to school and have real degrees and all of their teeth still. <laughs> Guess what? I do my own research and my own dental work. Family, you, you want to just, I don't, I don't know, leave this stage and maybe go get a, a coffee somewhere together later? I usually get mine with cream. But today, I think I'm going to try all black. I think sometimes we get caught up in like a recency bias, right? I think right now we're kind of in this cycle of thinking. We're in this age of unprecedented art or unprecedented conversation that we get so caught up in our own moment of hype that we don't want to sit and just like reach back and think about like what were our, you know, just like our forebears like saying about this same conversation 20 years ago, right? Yeah, so that's the homie Shamira Ibrahim. Uh, she's a writer and, and cultural critic, and she also still has a full-time gig in finance, which I guess makes her a unicorn, or maybe just a millennial. And I hit her up because, like, she is my progressive lodestar on thorny, messy political issues, and I just trust her politics more than I trust my own. What do you think people presume about your politics when they see you without any sort of idea of who you are? And so what do you think people see when they see you? Um, I would say that when people see me for the first time, um, well, first, I think now they just kind of assume that all Black people are quote unquote woke, which is like this new slur for people who want to say nigger but can't say nigger right you know mm -hmm. so they just say you know that's crazy right how woke became the new nigger like how, how how the hell did that happen like i feel like the new rule should be you shouldn't be able to say the word woke if you don't know the erica badu song it came from right like i mean actually it originally came from an essay but you know if you can't reference the erica badu song that popularized it right like you know you shouldn't be able to quote it use the word but whatever right i'm sure there's this assumption that i'm quote-unquote woke right um i'm sure there's an assumption that i believe black lives matter right you know that i believe in like the basic liberal you know positions right you know because you're black right because you know? you're black exactly so right? there's a presumption of being progressive of being progressive 
or, or being progressive in a way that platforms black closets. Yeah. Black, yeah. So, you know, causes. Exactly. Okay. Right. So I'm sure there's a basic assumption of that along the lines of party lines, right? Not necessarily along the mm. lines of like, oh, you know, how far does that line along a political ethos, right? So they would see me and potentially see like a, um, Cory Bush, right? Or an Ayanna Presley. Like they would like think about that in that respect, looking at my age demographic and where that would stand, right? Or, you know, if they're a little bit older, right? Because older people don't really like look at this and think about these things this way. They're like, oh, what a nice, respectable young woman, right? You know, oh, she would be great, you know, in just like liberal politics. And they would think of whatever nice black woman they think of, right? So you're obviously not nice. Or respectable. And, <laughs> and so, you know, obviously. Right. So they would think of whatever okay. like arbitrary person that would be. So Kamala, right, in their head is a good person, uh-huh. right? So, you know, uh-huh. in their head, that's a good person. Obviously, my politics run counter to that, right? But to them, that's that equals black liberal good, right? You know, like that's just upfront assumptions, right? That's what I would say from just first glance. And, you know, uh, you make an important distinction, too, between, like, the, I guess, the Cory Bushes and, and the squad, I guess, the, the squad or, or, or whatever. And then that sort of, you know, POC uh, politic and that sort of POC politician. Mm-hmm. And then you have the, the more, I guess, mainstream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like a, like a Kamala or maybe a Cory Booker mm-hmm. or, or, or someone, someone of that nature. And uh, it, it is interesting how someone's, I guess, aesthetic, Make you presume. I also like I present differently in different spaces, right? So So you code switch. Yeah, I guess you could call it code switching. What would you call that? Like because I all right. When I think of code switching, I, I think of a way that um my immediate assumption, my, my immediate connotation is, you know, is be behavioral deodorant that's applied to appease mainstream culture or appease whiteness mm-hmm. right when i think of code switching but we code switch all the time we code switch in conversation we act different differently mm-hmm. you know with different groups of people and and that's not always intentional sometimes it's just like a subtle you know uh, just a subtle change of behavior but yeah what would you call that when you show up differently in different spaces because i don't know if code switching necessarily applies there for me, it's that I just don't actively participate culturally, actually, in like the environments that for people to discover certain parts of my personality. So, for example, take my workplace for my day job. In I've worked in finance and technology for years now, uh, over a decade now, I realized most places that I've worked at, not that they would ever think I'm quiet, right? I'm not a quiet person, but, you know, they never know me in that sort of way. I don't necessarily talk about my life. I don't, but not necessarily like, like, you know, I'll talk about my weekend or whatever. Right. But like a lot of black people, right. Just don't necessarily go into it or whatever. But I also just like, don't put a lot of effort into myself as a person. I don't know how to explain that nuance in a meaningful way. A lot of people don't view me as the kind of person that let's say my friends who see me go out view me, right? As a person who's like always mm-hmm. doing the most or whatever, or like, you know, dressed up to the tents when I go out or, you know, kind of up front and center and loud or whatever, you know? So what I say, I'm not... Unrespectable. Co- <laughs> so what I say, I don't code, I'm not code switching. <laughs> it's just more so in the sense that I'm just like, I don't put the effort because I don't think they're worth it, Right. 
more about, I guess, protecting that part of you, protecting, I guess, the real part of you and creating like a, a bit of a shield. Yeah. Do you have any anxiety about people at work discovering that part of you? I just don't care to really engage in it meaningfully, right? Like in the sense of I'm not here to be your teacher, right? I'm not here to be the person that helps you figure out your journey. I'm not here to be that sounding board. I'm not here for you to figure out, oh, Shamira actually does all these other interesting things. Oh, she could be my cultural navigator. None of these things, right? You know, like it's one, unnecessary labor for me Two, just like fundamentally just ridiculous for me because I just don't get anything out of it. It's just taxing and like whatever, right? When I do do it, it's authentic. So you you know your um your relationship with your coworkers um in, in your occupation um now I I haven't had like physical coworkers in in over a decade um in terms of like an office job mm-hmm. or someone people that I see every day but it reminds me a bit of this dynamic with a regular pickup game you know I, I play basketball and that is that is still a form of of, of cardio of catharsis of fun right. for mm-hmm. me and it's. As you advance in age, like I am, it gets harder and harder to find a good pickup game. And so there is a really good game, a regular game that I play. And these guys are mostly white, right? And I'm cool with, with all of them, friendly with, with a few of them. I want to compartmentalize them mostly into, okay, these are the guys I hoot with. And that, that, that idea of compartmentalization and the importance of it, you know, was really driven home during, you know, the 2015, 2016 election cycle when I realized that one of them was like a pretty hardcore Trump supporter. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, had gone to his speeches, was, you know, and, and was vocal about, about being a fan of Trump. And it's like, do I stop going to this game? because of this guy, because of this guy's politics, or do I, am I able to compartmentalize um, in a way where it's like, you know what? I don't give a shit. I just, I found this rare, precious weekly hoop game that I really enjoy. And I don't want to bring the, the Damon Young writer person into this experience. I just want to hoop and then leave. And, you know, in the book, I, I also wrote about just attention with that, with, you know, questioning whether or not I am choosing my own sanity, which is what comes when I'm able to have that catharsis every week and play basketball over my integrity. And I, um, what would you have done? So I think it's like a little bit different for me, right? Like if I'm using it as a comparative for what you're talking about, right? And I'm assuming if you end up going to the same gym, right, to find a new pickup game, that's a little bit of an awkward you know, situation, unless you find a different time to find a different pickup group, right? You know, like, I also don't know the dynamics of Pittsburgh. So I don't know if you would find a different court at a different place, right? So for example, for me, right, like, playing pickup, we would play pickup at, like, where I grew up, we would play pickup at the record. Like, I know, like, the idea of playing pickup at the record, everyone is, like, sanctified ground, right? But, like, 
you know, the record, like people play pickup I mean, games play, there. They play like, basketball. Yeah, yeah they, like, you basketball play... exists there when there's not <laughs> But there's the not EBC. an EBC yeah. game, right? So like. Yeah. So, yeah. And I mean, and again, I, I you're right. Context matters and situation matters. I'm in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh doesn't have the same sort of basketball culture that a city like New York City does. So there, there aren't a lot of just regular pickup games. Like I, I think about that and I also kind of extrapolate it onto just other social, you know, social situations that are that are relatively low stakes. And so let let's say this 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 white barista short hair knows things, tats, whatever, and I presume a certain thing about their politics and I find out that they are actually, you know, um like a, a proud boy or, 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 or something along those lines. Right. Or sympathetic to that. And do I stop going to that coffee shop? I would with these low stakes social interactions. And, and again, I'm, I'm in Pittsburgh, so I, I have to interact with white people. Mm-hmm. I have my presumptions and there are certain neighborhoods where, you know what, I, I, I presume that, okay, this neighborhood is a bit more safe, bit more progressive, bit more whatever than this other neighborhood. Right. But you just never know. You never know what these people are doing, you know, when they're not interacting with you, what these people are really thinking, what these people, where these people's politics really, really exist. And so I'm wondering how much that should dictate behavior with the low stakes social interaction. Right. So I guess I'll say a couple things. I I know we start off this conversation talking about kind of how other people perceive us. Right. And then, um, you know, kind of at our first glance. I would say the counter to that, how we perceive in kind of opposition, I don't know if I would say that would be a one-to-one thing, right? Because that perception of, let's say, white people to us or whoever that would be, right? That's coming, you know, from a position of power, right? We're looking in reverse from a position of safety. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's like kind of us looking, you know, whether positive or negative, making an assessment of like, how is this going to affect me and my interaction in this moment, right? You know, like a person making an, you know, assumption, you know, about a Black person or a non-Black person of color is generally making an assumption based off of whatever hierarchical hierarchical structural assumption, right? Um, Now, whether or not you choose to, you know, interact with that, you know, and engage with that is, is one thing, but I think you're kind of making an informational assumption just as your own kind of gauge, right? to kind of choose how to move forward. So I would say that would be the main thing. And I would say people do that all the time, right? I think in New York, people do that, right? When, yeah, you still can't, you know, there's still a ton of white people in New York. I think people think that just because New York is like, you see a bunch of like Spanner signs everywhere. There's like, you know, there's like no <laughs> white people. And I'm like, there's white people everywhere in New York, y'all. Like, you know? And it's, it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's really quick. It's one of the funniest parts to me. <laughs> or one of the wildest parts, I guess, of like the discourse about a show like Girls or a show like Friends, mm-hmm. where people talk about you can't be in New York City and have a all-white friend group. It's like, yes, you can. You could do that wherever you live. It's actually part, probably one of the most realistic parts of, like, and I was a person who actually initially engaged in criticism of a show like Girls like that, because not that I thought that they should have a Black person in the friend group, right? But it's like, the reality is that a Dominican person or Puerto Rican person or whatever wouldn't be in their friend group, but they would be in the periphery, right? They would be in the bodegas. Yeah. They would be in the, the street corners or whatever, because Williamsburg is a Puerto Rican Dominican neighborhood. 
But if you think about it from a directorial standpoint, right, it's actually in some ways smart that they didn't actually do that because that's the world they exist in. They don't exist to them, right? You know, like, and so it's actually telling that they don't put them in, right? Because that's the universe they exist in. So if you're hearing this, it it very obviously means that I got over whatever ambivalence I felt about being on the same platform or show Rogan. It made amends with my own hypocrisy. But I'm actually not a hypocrite. Well, at least not here. It's a it's a personal and political choice I'm making to not allow some white man's fuck shit to impact my work. My life. I mean if if he want to say dumb shit and if Spotify wants to pay him dumb money for it, that's on them. I have too many problems of my own to react to white people's problems too. They need to figure that shit out for themselves. And while that's happening, I'll be over here making this black ass show and minding my black ass business. Stuck with Damon Young is a Spotify original podcast from Gimlet and Crooked Media. It's hosted and written by me, Damon Young. Ruben Davis is our executive producer. Our producers are Ashley Velez, Morgan Moody, Carlton Gillespie, Priscilla Alabi, Stephen Hoffman, and Corinne Gilliard. Mixing and sound design by Jesse Nas, Charlotte Landis, and Veronica Simonetti. Theme music and score by Open Mike Eagle. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are Tanya Sominator, Sarah Geismer, and Katie Long. From Gimlet, our executive producers are Rosie Guerin, Crystal Hall Stressler, Colin Campbell, and Lydia Polgreen. 